Oh, no, 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 we're not keeping any of this. We're not joking. We're serious people talking about manifestos. Thank you. Sorry. Excuse me. Okay. Very good. <laughs> Adam's going to try and sneak this <laughs> in. And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom. I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius. Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stopped making myths turned to issuing proclamations. Your guides for this journey. My co-host, Phil Cly, author of the National Book Award-winning short story collection, Redeployment. Our crack producer, talented musician and recording engineer, Adam Kamara, and me, the knocker-off of tall hats, Jake Siegel. May you continue to be a person. For this installment, we have our inaugural guest, Harry Siegel, a senior editor at the Daily Beast, a columnist uh, at the New York Daily News, hell of a writer, uh, Jake's uh, better-looking older brother. And uh, Harry has picked the Elliot Roger manifesto, My Twisted World, Roger being the mass killer who in 2014 killed six people and injured 14 others and uh, inaugurated this kind of – was a key player in this kind of toxic, misogynistic subculture uh, that recently spawned a copycat killer in Toronto killing people with a van uh, who was inspired by Roger. Uh, And also uh, there's a kind of broader community. They call themselves incels. Uh, I mean you have some thoughts about this, Jake. Yeah, the point I want to make now is a way to frame the conversation that uh, everyone's about to hear is that there's a danger in granting legitimacy to the idea of incels as a coherent community. And the danger, which is really coming from both sides of the debate, from people uh, pointing to the incels as kind of the embodiment of a broader toxic masculinity culture on the one hand, and from people on the other hand pointing to the incels more sympathetically as a kind of aggrieved uh, victim group with legitimate uh, complaints against society is that it legitimizes and, and reifies the premises of what is basically um, just a, a kind of online identity formation without any real uh, grounding historically um, or or in the real world. You know, there's a lot of It's like a Cambrian explosion of identities online, right? These kind of Tumblr identity formations. And I think in many ways, incels are best understood as another sort of online victim identity group, which is not to say that they don't run adjacent to things in the real world, but that we don't want to be taking their premises at face value. Oh, and one thing that we need to mention If you like the podcast, please go on iTunes and give us a five-star rating. That would be great for us. Um, If you hate the podcast, also go on iTunes and give us a five-star rating. It will trick the robots into tricking your friends into listening to it, and then you'll have someone to complain to about us. Um, Okay. We have a Facebook page. You should go to this Facebook page. Um, We're going to post the supplemental 
material. So not just the manifesto and the main work of art for the week, but if we, you know, reference an essay that comes up a few times in the course of our conversation, we'll throw a link there and, you know, you can go, um, I would recommend using a false name for your Facebook, try and whatever (laughs) symbolic resistance you can offer to the, um, machines. But, uh, yeah, go to the Facebook page and, you know, do whatever you do at Facebook. And our art today is Martin Scorsese's 1976 film Taxi Driver, starring Robert De Niro. All right, should we get into it? Let's go. Can I ask you a question about it? So you had to cover this for the Daily News, right? And whenever there's, there's one of these things, there's always this sort of debate about whether to give these people any attention at all, right? Uh, because the coverage seems to drive copycats. The Daily News and the Daily Beast are my employers, so I'm going to say this cautiously. It's terrible to give these people attention. It's like suicide. It's contagious. It inspires copycats. So when attention is given, and this goes back through all these spree killings into something like Sandy Hook, and it's not just if you say why you're doing it. If you look at Sandy Hook, if you look at Vegas, there are also people who just want to up the body count and pay attention to the previous ones. That urgent coverage and the attempt to get new information out in the first few hours as this is happening and right after is plainly terrible. Rogers is there right when this online world is starting to coalesce and before we understand a lot of this. And he's actually figuring a bunch of this out for himself. So it's clumsy and interesting in his manifesto. But we have ideologies of this now and people emulating other ones. So, so paranoid schizophrenics who once were locked in their own corners, mm-hmm. sadly, of the world, you know, have like found each other online and they're, they're joining forces to stop gang stalking, which is when everyone in the world is actually following them, right? Mm-hmm. These incels, there have always been people who have been frustrated that, that they can't find, uh, find sex. And there's people who really can't and there's people who are locked in their own brains about it and other things. And traditionally, there's a number of outlets for this. Um, you paint, um, you join the army, Um, You live a life of quiet despair. Um, Maybe you kill yourself, not that I'm suggesting anyone should have to do that. But having this become a movement or an ideology, having people share this name Mm -hmm. and find a common identity in it. So it's not, here is where I am and and I'd really like to find the right person. It's like it actually becomes an identity is brand new. And anything that we're doing to encourage this, I think is really troubling. At the same time, I think it's not up your, to us. You put your finger... Well, it is up to you, actually. I don't think that's true at all. The idea that the media has uh, no choice in what it covers and that it's compelled to cover this mm-hmm. by I mean, some natural law. But, 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 it's still there. But even the way if, the internet even if it's, it's not up to you, there to you made us extent. read it to come right. on the podcast to discuss. <laughs> so also, that is a dodge. <laughs> Yeah, but also it's not there in the same way. You're saying that the coverage encourages um, more of these killings, which I, I think is true. I was like, oh, Harry's so, going to pick something really interesting to read. But it's not a static All ecosystem. the, the, the Islamic <laughs> terror stuff, right? Yeah. He, uses, he uses a car for an attack when this hadn't been happening in the U.S. yet, right? Um, um, he does that along with, with weapons. He's shooting random people to send some sort of message that, that, that's vaguely connected. He's shooting young, attractive people in a college town, but that's it, right? Um, well, it's Alex Manassian, Toronto killer, who really picks up on the jihadist tactic mm-hmm. in an interesting mm-hmm. way. But I think what you just did on Harry is two separate things. One is the way that mass killings, separate from the ideology behind a particular sort of mass killing, mass killings themselves are a viral contagion. 
and there's some interesting work on this by a guy named Ari Shulman, among other people. That's one part of it, the way in which the the mass killings themselves as media spectacle, a self-affirming media spectacle, become a sort of contagion. Separate from that, there's the way that the status of a certain kind of man uh, or a, a, a certain set, a certain constellation of troubles, uh, perceived deprivations, coalesce in this kind of online identity world of the incel, which Rogers is both uh, a part of in this sort of initial emergent phase and then does much to inform and shape and his legacy in part, and you're talking about this sort of semi-ironic way in which he's invoked, um, he becomes a, a figure of internet lore and you know the the Toronto killer, um, you know who, whose name I, I sort of hesitate to mention, uh, but the Toronto van attack killer is somebody who's explicitly invoking the Rogers legacy, and who saw himself as part of this incel movement. What the manifesto does, I think, is lay out some of the psychology behind this in this utterly flat and unmediated way because Rogers is so sociopathically so lacking a certain form of self-awareness he lays this out so nakedly the things that are most humiliating in this condition and his wants his demands on the world his pain is so wince-inducingly plain in the way that he states it. He seems to not know what to be embarrassed of. The things that cause him embarrassment in social situations don't align with what we as readers perhaps think ought to be embarrassing to him. As we're reading this, for instance, the way in which he recounts crying, calling his mother over these utterly trivial things suggests uh, there's a kind of misalignment to me, suggests a kind of misalignment in his social formation. I'm not trying to psychoanalyze the guy from a distance. Maybe I am trying to do that. That's part of what we're doing here, I suppose. But I, I just, you know, I read it and I didn't think, I didn't think there was that much there. Like, it's a poorly written manifesto by a guy with no sense of other people, purely obsessed with basic material things, like the things that society values, he values. So, like, social status, wealth, and sex, he thinks are really great. He doesn't really, doesn't seem to actually derive any joy from things. Um, he does talk a lot about his exquisite pleasure drinking Starbucks. That's yeah. about it. An exquisite meal. It's all so very have Patrick a, Bateman, right? It's an very American meal. psycho yeah, but, movie, not book. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, but, you know, you, you, you read this, and I sort of thought, I didn't, he, uh, he joins... There's, there's nothing there. Nothing. But that's what's valuable in it as a... <laughs> I'm serious. As a document, what's valuable in it is that he's not aware enough of his... The, the lack to dress it up and make it something that it's not. Its plainness, its affectlessness is what makes it interesting in a way. And, and listen, I'm repelled by it. And he's a utterly repellent character. But it is so nakedly what it is. It's so purely this kind of desperate 
acquisitiveness. Like, he just wants... Harrods is a gigantic, renowned luxury designer store. Every facet of it exuded beauty and excessive opulence. It was my type of place. I wished I was rich enough to buy anything I wanted at the store. There were so many choices of fabulous clothing, but alas, I had to settle with buying only one Giorgio Armani shirt. If my mother had been wise enough to marry one of those wealthy men she dated, perhaps then I would have been rich enough. Such a pity. His punishment is to be himself. Unfortunately, he's punishing others. Innocence at the same time. You have a hard time believing that this is a real document that could inspire a killing because it's so foppish. It's so exaggeratedly like this little lord font. How do you say font? He is trying to game things. So he joins puahate.com, right? So he's not joining at that point as the internet is growing around him, the pickup artist community, he's mm-hmm. a gamer, and he wants to. He's like, I- I'll figure this out. If I can have a level 60 character, I can have sex with beautiful and sophisticated women. He right, can. because that's, that's the way so that he, he joins the human being, hate. right? Like, these people promised it, but they couldn't deliver me the magic. He obsessively right. plays the, the lottery. PUA being right. the pickup artist. Right. Um, and then he loses the lottery, and then he cries. It, it's... Um, on, on the morning of the first day, as he's really preparing to get there and he's going to college now, this guy has never worked in his life, who, who, who's sort of mm-hmm. ripping off his parents openly, and that's where he's getting the money for his guns and other things. It's from the money they're giving him to go to school where he has these other troubles. But if people remember— I don my fabulous Armani Exchange shirt and put on my new Gucci sunglasses. I admired myself in the mirror for a moment. I stopped at Starbucks to buy a latte and set off for college with this confidence. I was a superior gentleman. That's what I was born to be. It was time to show it to the world. Yes, I thought. I am the image of beauty and supremacy. And, and, then, and then he goes into class. It's the first day of class. And nobody looks at him. And he's crushed. And this is again and again and again in this sad and flat way. No, it's way. a grotesque, hyper-real version of the absolute ugliness of American consumerism. I mean, if you were attempting to craft the most scathing and exaggerated indictment possible of a certain kind of utterly soulless, consumerist, hyper-capitalist acquisitiveness, you couldn't do better than what this guy presents himself as, and he applies the same logic, the same purely consumptive logic to sex, to women. There is no joy outside of acquisition. There is no status. There is no life outside of acquisition. But if you compare this, right, we we did uh, Valerie Solanus's scum earlier. Now, Solanus also had uh, mental problems, also uh, suffered far more in her early life than than Rogers did. Um, And, you know, also tried to kill people. But the Solanus, the scum manifesto has... You know, now that we're doing literary criticism of murderers and attempted murderers, has a kind of verve, a bit of wit. Yeah, hum- let's just say humor. It's got a style. It's got a style. This is totally without style. I mean, it is so close to the kind of hollowed out, like Patrick Bateman in the movie American Psycho. By by the way, directed by Mary Harron, who mm-hmm. also mm-hmm. directed I Shot Andy Worlds. She's a brilliant film director. The the movie of American Psycho is so so much better than the book, there's really no comparison. Uh, but it's so much like that kind of Bateman, pure, m- 
gaping hunger maw for acquisition with nothing behind it, with nothing but this kind of howling, murderous rage behind it, no center to it at all. Right. And so he, he concludes with this thing that's straight out of Hollebeck. Um, Welbeck. Sorry. Straight out of Welbeck. Hollebeck. I'm going to get it. I would have pronounced Hollaback. it that way. I would have pronounced it that way, too. Um, that goes into a, a, a vague attempt to make this political, and it's the ultimate evil behind sexuality is the human female. They're the main instigators of sex. The most beautiful of women choose to mate with the most brutal of men instead of magnificent gentlemen like myself. And then he explains, I can't do this, so I'm just going to destroy things and, like, kill whoever I can right now. And, like, uh, attractive young people will probably have sex. Is that, that's what's well, open so to me. It, in, it was, in his, he was either going to win the lottery, yep. in which case he would have enough money to get women. Right. Right. Um, or he's going to murder people. And he actually plays the lottery repeatedly in this sort of pathetic hope that he won't have to murder people. He also intended to murder his younger brother, who's the one person he speaks decently of in the entire thing. And he thinks is decent and who looks up to him and he wants to shape a better thing to him. And he says, that guy's going to end up having sex. I need need to murder him too and my stepmom and and maybe my dad, but that would be complicated, so I'll save that for the end. And then he doesn't end up getting there. But this is fully and wholly part of his plan. And when you watch the YouTube videos of this guy, he's so flat, he's so disaffected. It is profoundly uh, uh, American psycho sitting in his BMW, uh, you know, with with the designer's sunglasses on, um, explaining his uh, his inherent superiority in terms that make simply no sense. Um, And he's somebody who's plainly cut off from the world and has whatever mental illness is and um, and then takes this as a profound injustice that's been exercised on him. And unlike the people who followed, figures out for himself some sort of black pill solution that he's going to go out and do this. And maybe this is the early internet speaking. Maybe there's something else going on in his brain. But he seems like an extremely unlikely first actor to me. It is, it is as you've been saying, like just, just an ordinary and banal sort of uh, suffering as he sees it or, or desperation that he has. Along with whatever trouble the listener is coming, you know, I kept thinking of in in Conrad the um, the secret agent. One of the things that I really like about that book is there's this character, the professor, who's <clears throat> always walking around with a bomb, and it's like this sort of ultimate terrorist. Except that in that book, that guy is is both terrifying and also f- like comical. Right, like mm-hmm. he's he's a ridiculous person. It's a funny book. Yeah, and sort of and should be laughed at. And the only thing, the only reason that you don't want to laugh at him is because he might murder somebody, uh, and that's right. you know, kind of this guy, right? Yeah, the and that's the whole model of the secret agent is that other people are constructing an ideology and a set of reasons around this guy, who uh, who generally. Sort of believes in uh, in murder, yeah. Likes to tinker and doesn't have all that much else going on, and is just a mechanism walking through society. Listen, we're we're in the uncomfortable position of um, you know lavishing attention on a, a dead psycho killer who has encouraged more psycho killers. But if there's something to be done here, if there's a reason to do it, I think the reason is that there's something fundamentally not adequately. Diagnosed or, or or not adequately dealt with, uh, 
there's something in the kind of Rogers mold that I don't think the standard analysis that you get about uh, insult killers as products of toxic masculinity or insult killers as products of neoliberal sexuality, neither of these seem to me to deal with um, fundamentally uh, sort of the formation of these the formation not only of these individuals but of the social ecosystems online in which they exist and in which they they are shaped. And I, I'm let, not let, saying let the me, internet made them killers, but it's but part it of understanding that. Let me read something. There's a there's a bit. So, Vesley Grossman was in. Um, he uh, did a series of. He's uh, in Treblinka. Was with the Brit Army and it interviewed a bunch of people about what happened there, and he wrote this long essay about uh, Treblinka. And there's a bit there where he he describes. He says, <clears throat> "All witnesses mentioned the atrocities of one human-like creature, an SS man called Zepf. He specialized in chil- killing children. The beast, who possessed a massive physical strength, would suddenly seize a child out of the crowd and either hit the child's head against the ground, waving the child like a cudgel, or ta- or tear the child in two halves. Zepf's work was important." It added to the psychological shock of the doomed people and showed how the illogical cruelty was able to crush people's will and consciousness. He was a useful screw in the great machine of the fascist state, and we should all be terrified, but not by the nature that gives birth to such degenerates. There are lots of monstrosities in the organic world, cyclops, creatures with two heads, as well as the corresponding terrible spiritual monstrosities and perversities. It is another thing that is terrible. These creatures that had to be isolated and studied like psychiatric phenomena were living in a certain country as active and useful citizens. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, what causes this? Is this a certain kind of person who has always existed and who is more or less dangerous? The the state has always managed to, bad states have always managed to systematize people like that, put them to some productive use that allows them to find ugly meaning, or at least a form of existence. What's happening now is these self-generating communities are starting to build their own people of that sort who go out and do terrible acts in the service of whatever vague complaints or or ideological goals or lulls or very specific ones. And that, I think, is brand new and and, and, and really scary is how many people can can sort of not not summon these monsters up who are already there, but put them to some use or at least claim them for some cause. Right. Listen, there are also, there have always been involuntary virgins. This is not uh, something that's a, a product of late capitalism by any stretch. I mean, the Middle East is also full of involuntary virgins. And, uh, you know, there are social problems that attend to... Having uh, too many young men. Having too many young men and the pairing off of uh, sort of uh, commitments and attachments is one of the fundamental functions of any society is figuring out how it's going to produce a stable, replicating, reproductive, and social arrangement. So it's a, a very basic problem of any society. One of the things... Yeah. You know, he doesn't emerge out of, like, there's too many men. I mean, like he's, the reason that he's not yeah. Yeah. being able to find a woman is not... It's because he's the kind of guy who wrote this sort of manifesto, right? And 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 did what he did. Um, like in en- in enough in enough in enough like 
in, in a big enough population, you're going to have a certain number of people who are going to do violence, whether it's for, you know, they're going to seize on this particular ideology or they're going to do it for God knows what reason or, right, right, you know, right. every time there's a there's a, a mass killing, there's always this kind of subcomponent of the conversation, which is like, what is the particular ideology of the killer and... This is and does that matter? And does it matter? Like, this, this is what not to report on. Right. And, 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 and then very occasionally it's an issue when it's not reported on, as right. with Matin... When when we got two right. weeks of speculation about whether or not it was a closet case, reported on falsely, right? right. Uh, um, because the, the nine one one tapes weren't put out, in which he's doing his like deep ISIS fanboy cuts. Right. Like I don't just know the greatest hits, but as a general yeah. rule, what, like racing to find out whatever whatever ravery and batshit that somebody said in the course of going out and doing a, a mass murder, a small mass murder, mm-hmm. is one of the worst and most destructive possible things to, you can do. And you see how this plays out in the media when when somebody doesn't do that like like in Vegas where it actually makes the coverage spike and then decline faster even after that level of uh, of horror because you're not able to put the uh, the narrative over it it's it's more difficult to have the post killing hot take beyond the normal gun and debate. ISIS got there first with, like, weaponizing schizophrenics and, and, yeah. and, and, and half nuts, right? So, so you have, like, you know, your, your gay hustler in France who's going to run people over in a truck in, in, in the name of ISIS. Like, my God. Fortune teller in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but that is not something they own. This is something that, that anyone, and again, not just states right now, but, but like, weird, weird actors and, and, and just sort of screwy people are increasingly able to weaponize to some purpose or to no purpose, and to the extent we jump and say, this one goes in this camp, and we need to count them over there. Uh, as J.M. Berger just had a piece in The Atlantic, like, laying this out, and he's like, well, the Waffle House guy isn't exactly, we can't say he's a terrorist because he, he, he had these racist things, we didn't do a manifesto, you know, but this other nut who, who did, you know, a parallel nutty thing and had hatred, we can say that. Uh, the Florida mass shooting... Uh, uh, the Parkland one raises some obvious questions there too. I just think that trying to put, put put people in these boxes, and the race to do so is doing considerably more harm than good at the moment. Berger's point, in part, and uh, you know, I think Berger's pretty sharp on this stuff. In general, I, I know you have some disagreements with Amir. I think they're legitimate, but um, there is a, a important distinction that needs to be made for legal and technical reasons between yep. terrorism and other forms of violence, because the invocation of terrorism has legal uh, consequences and then brings state power to right. bear in a way that and non-terrorist violence does burger because we need to define terms yes and so 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 and we ought to define terrorism wrestling with which narrowly. terms yeah yeah and this is not something we want to continually expand but it's not just that the these isolated damaged people uh, have a greater capacity to inflict their violence on the world there's something else, which is the formation of these kind of identity groups around these um, these sorts of grievances, these sorts of uh, you know grievances against the society that in the past perhaps would have had to have been addressed by the society in which these people lived, not always in the most compassionate or humane ways. I'm not saying that previous dispensations for dealing with male virgins were ideal. Um, but, I don't think, but but like, I don't think that force... has anything to do with it, honestly. Like, I, I, like Elliot, Elliot's problems would not have been solved had some woman somehow decided to have sex with him, right? Like, I, I, I think that it's more to what Harry was saying about, like, was he said ISIS just figured out how to weaponize like psychopaths, right? Like, you're, it's like it's like the 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 um, 
the bit from Grossman where there's like there's certain freaks of nature. What they say about their own psychology is not probably not going to tell you that much, but there are sort of structures that they can align themselves with or groups that, that are seeking to find people like that to then... No, I, I totally agree with you, yeah. but there's, there, there's a reverse of that, which is not the structures they seek to align themselves with. It's the structures that align with them after the fact. Right. And so what I'm saying is not that uh, Rogers could have been placated or should have been placated. Uh, Rogers was a, a sociopath, it, it seems to me, and I use that in precisely the non-clinical uh, meaning of, because um, I'm not even sure exactly what the clinical meaning is, but but he was a, a guy whose murder uh, murderousness doesn't seem to me uh, that it was sort of that there was a proximate cause that you know could have been headed off in some way. I can't say that to a certainty, obviously, but he's clearly a deeply damaged person. Um, and the recourse to total destruction, I can't get what I want. I will therefore destroy everything so no one can have it, is a very, very old impulse that's addressed very early in the Bible by uh, God and uh, <laughs> You know, this is a very, very old, old thing. Mm-hmm. What happens, though, yes, what happens, though, is that the the sort of social phenomena that he aligns with takes him as a kind of icon. And uh, for them, the, the resonance of Rogers in this larger community um, you know, I think is meaningful. It doesn't mean that we need to sort of negotiate with the incels, but it does mean that there is a reason why um, there are these larger communities forming around uh, dissatisfaction, around sexual resentment. This is not to say that this is purely a new thing, but it has taken on a new form. And there is, uh, I think, a very good and compelling social reason to try and deal with the problem of young men who feel... I disagree. I don't even know what that... Like, what what would that even mean? So, so Elliot Rogers has a suggestion here. Oh, great. Mm-hmm. Can't wait to hear. Um, so, 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 as I was saying, he, he keeps squirting people prior to, to murdering them. He throws coffee at them, and he gets a super soaker. He goes and buys one, gets in his BMW, fills it up with orange juice, and just shoots people who are, like, out playing a sport in a park. And right. then runs away in his car and, like, hides from the police. Tall blondes he throws an iced tea at. Several. Yeah. So, and then hot, hot coffees. So, so this is all right before he goes and does his, his murder spree. So he goes to a Starbucks. And this is one of the only places he seems to find himself at peace, that in malls. Um, and he looks up, and there's a young couple, and they're uh, kissing passionately. The girl was a pretty blonde. They looked like they were in the throes of passionate sexual attraction to each other, uh, rubbing their bodies together and tongue-kissing in front of everyone. I was absolutely livid, livid with envious hatred. So he leaves in his rage-fueled excitement, drove, uh, drives off. Um, he never struck at his enemies before. I felt this sense of gratification for doing so. Um, and then he splashes co- comes back, splashes coffee at them. The boy yells, and he runs away in fear. I hated them so much, even though I splashed them with coffee, he was still the winner. He was going home to have passionate, heavenly sex with his beautiful boy, um, girlfriend. And I was going home to my lonely uh, room. I cursed the world. 
Um, and then he goes on about how he, now he really just wants to kill and skin people alive. The males deserve it for taking the females away from me, and the females deserve it for choosing these males instead of me. This is not that this guy could not go out to social events and, and, and somehow, as, as happens in the course of, of human events, um, has sex. This is the, that he has created a whole mental swirl in his brains. So I think putting that into the marketplace of like sexual supply and demand which is, I think, what you were doing and saying that's a problem we need to deal with is a serious mistake. I'm saying that dealing with that problem would not deal with Elliot Rogers, but it would deal with other people for whom, in a deeply disturbing but less murderous way, Rogers has become an icon of sorts. Right, but who would... But, like, if you're not deeply disturbed, who... How is yeah. Rogers going to become an icon yeah. for you? I mean, listen, you didn't know kids in high school who were, like, into Charlie Manson and the Columbine shooters. And uh, I'm not suggesting that they were well-adjusted, but people latch on to perversities as ways of expressing sometimes their own anguish and dissatisfaction. We don't need to, we don't need to, to pander to that necessarily. One of my big points of reference here yeah. um, with, with, with Rogers, and, and just to separate those two strands out for a second, is, is Durkheim and, and, uh, uh, and his study of suicide. Right. Right? And... It seems like uh, in the ways in which he was dealing with how social variables affect the suicide rate, that you have like a population of potentially suicidal people and right. then some subset that actually will, and that can move up or down. And in the U.S., like one of the mechanical elements that plays into that is that we have so many handguns. Right. And one of the things handguns are really useful for outside is killing yourself. And it makes it easier. It makes you a lot more likely to be effective and so on. We seem to be at a point where there are all sorts of, of – of, of, uh, Factors and triggers, but we seem to be having a society in which all these suicidal people are suddenly exploding outwards. And that even some of the ones who are just motivated by, by, by anomie and despair in a sense that all the meaning's been sucked out instead of imploding are exploding. And that there's more of this happening for whatever nominal or real ideological causes and, and that it's really important we figure out why. And some of this does seem to me in the most general sense to be tied in with video games and, uh, and, and sex robots and the sense of the apocalypse and the internet, but I don't know how that stuff Okay, but if you're going to bring in video games and sex robots, part of what video games and sex robots are a response to is the way in which there's been a... Uh, there's an uneven distribution of sex and intimacy. There's always no, been... Yes. I don't think so. Yeah, let, me, let me present to you that there has always been an uneven distribution of sex and intimacy. What makes Rogers unique, again, is not that he is... Um, we're right back to scum and just just get rid of men. Seriously, well, we, we are back to scum in some ways. Right. Yeah. This is this is that's the problem. No. I mean, yes, there's always an unequal distribution, but Rogers I, I, thinks again, the thing, the that thing, Rogers thing. thinks that the world owes him pornographic fantasy. Rogers thinks that the the purpose of his existence is to achieve the consummation right, but Rogers of a pornographic fantasy, regardless of what the he social. He says he's repulsed whatever. by porn. He writes about yeah. every time he sees porn and how much it disgusts him, which is interesting. And then he has this computer for playing World of Warcraft, and he has to keep getting stuff from his parents. He never works. They're paying for everything for his therapist, for his car, for his education, and so on. And then he just mentions in passing that his World of Warcraft computer got a virus. Mm. If you know what I mean, and I know what he means. He was surfing for porn. And he ended up getting a virus. 
virus on his computer, and he ended up having to get a new computer. And there, there's something tremendously sad about that, that he, he describes in detail how revolted he is when, when friends in that way, like a 14-year-old Will, says, look, here's a naked woman. And he's, he's like, I, 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 I never spoke to that person again. I was sickened, and I went and told my mother. Um, if we're going to deal with Rogers as anything other than a specimen of singular, unfathomable evil, then he's a exaggerated, pathologized version of something that is much more prevalent in a less murderous, less sociopathic form, and which is you could call something like to- toxic masculinity. I think this would be a pretty good time to, to use that phrase insofar as it conceives of the purpose of life in purely sort of it takes the tokens of a kind of gross deformed manhood right which are the acquisition of goods the acquisition of women as merely another good the acquisition of sexual experience as merely another good there's no fleshy intimacy he's repelled by fleshy intimacy, right? The the closest he can get is to throw liquids on people from a distance, scalding liquids some of the time from a distance. But there is something in him that takes to a utterly grotesque and eventually murderous level what is this kind of deformed uh, product reflection of a... Uh, you know, a certain kind of like deformity of manhood and of masculinity and which involves, um, you know, the the idea. Look, he's 22 talking about it's all over for me because I haven't, ha- you know, he graduates high school. It, he hasn't had sex in high school. And this scars him for life. It marks him for life. He's 22. It marks him. The idea that at 22, that being a virgin at 22 is not only so deeply shameful, but it's also an insurmountable condition. That at 22, if you haven't had sex, you are a a repellent, uh, irredeemable failure. I think, you know, is a a more cartoonish, hideous version of uh, a not uncommon sentiment. And I think that that sentiment is sick and unhealthy. And that insofar as there are new social ethoses that emerge, we, we form new ideas about how to interact with one another, what we owe to one another. That's an indication of something that's deeply sick and disturbed in men in particular. And that the answer to this is not to grant those men everything they want, uh, but to, it, to look honestly at that. Uh, this is kind of a, an empirical question, but are there more sick, disturbed loners who are exploding outwards these days, or is it just... I share that question, and I think Jake is arguing by anecdote to where, uh, you know, to a set of arguments that, that he's engaged in that I'm not... I, 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 like, I agree with you that the there, there are ways in which the things that he's interested in in this manifesto kind of perfectly map the most kind of brute messages about what is valuable in American popular culture, right? Like, sex, status, wealth, Armani brands, glasses, Armani glasses, right? Like And racism. And racism, and racism yes. Yeah, and racism and women. Um, and the racism and women is, is a commodity. key, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and sort of these gradations, there's a bit where he's like, there's like an a- Asian guy with a white woman. He's like, well, I'm half Asian, so she should be with me. Right. Right? Um, but is it, you know, 
what I don't know, and you know, I think there are things that if if you had sort of mechanical changes like less guns, right? Like when you know you're talking about Durkheim earlier, when when Britain like they changed the stoves that they made, so it was it became impossible to kill yourself the Sylvia Plath way. Like the suicide rate went down because all of a sudden it was just harder to kill yourself. This would be one of the immediate effects of a more stringent handgun regulations. The suicides would go down, right? Um, and, but um, you know, sort of beyond those kind of fixes, is it really sort of like, would having a better society prevent people like this from exploding in murderous rage? I don't know. I, and I'm not saying that. You, you uh, Harry, suggested that, uh, like, I have a definitive answer there. I, I'm not sure. I'm agnostic on that. I lean towards probably not. Like I'm saying, I think Rogers is a case beyond reach. But the people on the second and third outer rings mm-hmm. beyond Rogers but who have some sort of perverse sympathy with him or who echo, perhaps in ways that they're ashamed of, some of his same complaints. Right. Might it work for them? Can we improve society in some fundamental way? Yes, I think we can improve society in some fundamental way. I don't take a totally fatalistic attitude towards this. And I don't think the point of improving society is to reach an Elliot Rogers necessarily, who I don't right. know could be reached through those means. But I, I think that this, the things that, uh, you know, part of what's so kind of grotesque with Rogers is also his cluelessness, right? Because as he's saying, I'm the supreme gentleman, why don't they like me? The joke is, part of the reason why he's become this cult figure is this utter cluelessness. They don't like you because you lack the qualities that women find attractive and what uh, marginal association you do have with those qualities a kind of porcelain doll features you make repellent by your character mentally ill clearly and cut off from them so he's trying to game this and what keeps striking but he doesn't get the rules the article i keep getting someone to write any any editors or writers Mm -hmm. who are listening is that all the terrorists are all on all these bodybuilding forms and everyone else on these bodybuilding forms is talking about them because this becomes like this form of hacking and here's how i'm going to win the game and get women and these other rewards by and, becoming and, and show tangible results. And there's I'm not knocking all bodybuilders, not all bodybuilders. No, no, no. This is a but, central, central right. point that so right. If you want to pick up, uh, from no, there. no. I think you're on it. It's not just by becoming buff. It's the self hacking. It's self mastery. And, and then get it confused when, when when that hack doesn't translate into the other thing you want, or it turns out just like the onion said, like a new Swiffer fails to uh, fails to fill like you know void in the center of life. Right. Um, that, 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 that you have. You, you found some self-mastery. You're larger. This is working for you. And the, your other dissatisfactions and things that choke you off are still there. But, so Rogers has money. Yeah. He has access to things. He, he has a he has therapist. He has, like, a, a, a family that plainly is bending over backward for him in a number of ways. And maybe it's terrible others. I, in others, I wouldn't know. But, like, none of this gives him any... Uh, any any satisfaction, and he has he has Warcraft, and that doesn't. Um, so 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 the parts don't 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 match up. Um, so so let's assume for a minute that there isn't some statistical rise in yeah. uh, in, in unhappy young men. The ways in which they can activate and or explode. Uh, there are many more paths open to them. And, like, traditionally, it really was, like, like sit there and fester or, or become a small criminal or lead an unhappy life or join or, or, join, or, or, or join, join, join the military or, or you know, or, or things like that. Be sent and on now the crusade. There, there are other easier and sort of cheaper options and mm-hmm. communities available to you that give some sense of, of meaning when that goes away. And, and Rogers is constantly 
Well, I was thinking you're fluctuating well, it's also between the things- I, 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 I'm an, I'm, I'm, how could this inferior ugly black boy get the white girl and not me? I am descended from British aristocracy, right? And saying, you know, I, I am I am nothing, you know? So it's like Pascalian, uh, uh, my greatness, my nothingness, and just bah, 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 ping pong, ping pong. And he figured some of this out for himself, and then other people emulate that model. It becomes it's another Pascalian. It's also, man, it's pure underground man, in, yeah. but, but without the... But in a, it's like a, a flatter sort of commercialized version of the underground man. You know, the throwing the liquid is perfectly like going to the park to find the civil servant mm-hmm. to bump into him. Right. Right. And it's this this ping ponging between yeah, this small self messianic grandiosity and a complete self negation. And it's these two things. Phil, I've said to you before. We've talked about before. You know, I often feel that. The great rapid technological advancements of the 20th century occurred concurrent with a complete stalling in the kind of progress of moral wisdom that, you know, we never really got past the late 19th century in terms of moral wisdom. And and Rogers, in some ways, is an example of what happens if you take the underground man and you place him uh, into Topanga Canyon in uh, you know the mid aughts, and he becomes less interesting but more dangerous. You can't even bother with the toothache. It's it's all just uh, things he vaguely doesn't have and can't relate to. And what he's owed as a position of his, what he uh, believes to be a position of his birth and birthright in terms of like this this kind of market determined. I'm white, so I'm half white. So I'm owed this much. Uh, my parents have this much money. So mm-hmm. I'm owed. None of you know the underground man believes himself to be great by virtue of some inner capacity of greatness within him that right. the world should be rewarding. Rogers believes that you know he goes to uh, an exchange and he presents to them it's, his half white Yeah, it's it's entirely come on. I mean, it's funny. Remember the interview that um, Melania Trump, where they asked her. Would Donald have married you if uh, – would you have married Donald if he wasn't rich? And she said, would he have married me if I wasn't beautiful? <laughs> right? Which yeah. is – I mean like sort of, it's the perfect answer, right? Yeah. But it's also a, a sad kind of vision of what a marriage is and what relationships between people are. And I, I think you know, the, the one thing that I'm sort of with you on in terms of the, the social structure is that you know, Rogers – it's it's transparently pathetic the things that he thinks are valuable, but it's also incredibly obvious that that is what are you know from wealth, sex, beauty, and race uh, is is something that our culture values tremendously as well. Yeah, but the things that he thinks are valuable and that he desires in this ravenous, thirsty way rhyme with the things that are most essential in life. So though he takes a predatory view towards sex and intimacy, for instance, um, you know, he's running parallel to that which is most essential in life. He's, it's a a deformity of that. In the same way, if you take his physical features, which in a certain way are kind of conventionally attractive, right, but are yet warped by a kind of inner leprosy, so you can't help but see his ugliness, you know, the things that he wants from life, he wants in a despicable, perverse way, but they are touching the things that everybody wants. And, you know, uh, the Harry is making faces at me like I'm, I'm just thinking. Okay. 
That was interesting. I was just thinking. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I have no idea if you could see that in his face without knowing the rest of this about him. No, I don't know. I, I, I'm putting that on him. So part of what we try to do is imagine if you took the manifesto seriously, what would that look like? And, you know, it's one thing when we're doing that with uh, the humanist manifestos or with Schiller's aesthetic letters. And now we're doing it with somebody who we know to be a, a mass killer. I mean, it would look like Elliot Rogers is the king of all humanity, <clears throat> surrounded by beautiful women. No, it would look like annihilation. Right. Right? It, if you took it seriously, it would look like annihilation because he's past the point, at the, at the writing of the manifesto, he's past the point of the sex, which you wonder, was it ever really the point? And the only consummation he can imagine is through destroying everything. Right. It's the point to him. I mean, it, it's the through line from, from the first page to the 140th, like, bowl. Wait, hold on. You're page. saying all this. But that would have to be, I mean, it would have to be, because somebody like this, there's no no thing you could get that would right. satisfy it. So, you know, it's like, well, you know, I got to level 70 on World of Warcraft, and I'm still not happy. You know, I mean, it's just, this, to, to him, the sex is just a different, it's just another metric, right? It wouldn't be Elliot reclining in a bed fed grapes and a, a cornucopia of um, sex and, and excess, it would look like the annihilation of everything because at the moment he writes or the writing of the manifesto, the manifesto is about destruction. It's not about sex. It's not about desire. There's no desire in it. it it's just a, a wish for destruction. It's a wish for revenge. And um, so it would look like it would look like killing. What I fear, and I'm going to say it, uh, what I fear is that the unstated desire actually is that it would look like us talking about it now. And um, I, I don't know, you know, whether that's something that's implicit in every manifesto, that part of what it would look like for it to be realized is just that it would be echoing in uh, in the world. Yeah, I think so. It's part of why I didn't really <laughs> I didn't really want to read it. I understand. Listen, Harry Siegel <laughs> comes in. I, I, I had no intention of reading it. I started and I, I was just stunned by the banality and I've been struggling to come to some, ter some terms with it and it's sort of helpful to talk about it out loud with the two of you and yeah. realize how difficult that is. So this is like the video in the ring where like you watch it, and then in order to not be destroyed by it, you need to share it with other people who <laughs> then are burdened with the awfulness. <laughs> and then, and then they're just echoes, right, of of, of things that uh, you know we've heard before and in more artistic contexts. But if I can, right, it, it's a uh, thank God for the rain, which has helped wash the garbage and trash off the sidewalks. All the animals come out at night: whores, skunk pussies, buggers, queens, fairies, dopers, junkies, sick, venal. Someday a real rain will come and wash all this scum off the streets. Humanity is a disgusting, wretched, depraved species. You will all be animals. You are animals, and I will slaughter you like animals. I'll be a god. Exacting my retribution on all those who deserve it. And you do deserve it just for the crime of living a better life than me. Right? And like this taxi driver... Uh, that's Elliot Rodgers. So there's I could have thrown Watchmen in there. You know, mm -hmm. Well, there's this segue into... Uh, into the work of art for this week, which is uh, Scorsese's film, 1977, I believe, Taxi Driver, which I'm pretty sure lost the Academy Awards to Rocky, which is a great picture. The first Rocky is a great picture. Yeah, it is. But Taxi Driver, I, I feel, is a bit better, in fact. 
Um, but that, what Harry just read, is a kind of uh, mishmash of parts of the soliloquy that Robert De Niro's character, Travis Bickle, from Taxi Driver, gives and Elliot Rogers' manifesto. You want to say something about Taxi Driver? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, it was a sort of being taken into the mind of a Elliot Rogers type, but but through a brilliant director. So it was just kind of interesting to to watch it after having read this. Um, it's a, it's a uncomfortable, unpleasant film to 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 see, though, because it's just even in the way that it's shot. You know, um, it, well, it's shot through his eyes, right, or through yeah. his emotional state. You yeah. and he gets more and more kind of cramped uh, as it goes on. Yeah. Um, Added straw dogs are like the two movies I've seen, <laughs> and I watched some of Taxi Driver again for this. But I'm like, I saw them, and I thought they were incredibly powerful. I wanted to watch, and I was like, I'm done. I don't need to see that again. Yeah, ever. Let me read this to you because this really struck me. I was doing a bit of research on Taxi Driver um, last night and I came across this interview. Uh, I don't know what year it was done, but it's an interview that Roger Ebert did with Scorsese. And in it, uh, Ebert asks Scorsese um, about a film he's doing. And he's asking him, will this film, not Taxi Driver, another one, will it take a feminist position? And Scorsese responds, well, it'll be about the problems of a career marriage. I don't know if it's feminist, actually, not like Alice, but Taxi Driver. This is my feminist film. Who says a feminist movie has to be about women? And then uh, you skip forward and and, uh, Ebert says, Taxi Driver, where the hero can't relate to women at all? Scorsese responds, feminist, because it takes macho to its logical conclusion. The better man is the man who can kill you. This one shows that kind of thinking. Shows the kinds of problems some men have bouncing back and forth between the goddesses and whores. The whole movie is based visually on one shot where the guy is being turned down on the telephone by the girl and the camera actually pans away from him. It's too painful to see that rejection. Um, Which makes sense to me, but I never... I was sort of surprised still to see Scorsese express it in those terms. Why do you want me to go back to my parents? I mean, they hate me. Why do you think I split in the first place? There ain't nothing there. Yeah, but you can't live like this. It's a hell. A girl should live at home. Didn't you ever hear of women's lib? It's a, a movie about a... A Vietnam veteran who takes a job as a taxi driver because he can't sleep at night. And he's another underground man character. He's another Dostoevsky in isolated, uh, isolated, uh, lone figure who's tormented by these kind of incohate existential longings in his head. And this, none of it comes together. It's like, Years ago, Harry, you told me that you thought the best, one of the best scenes in the film was where De Niro goes into this diner where other cabbies hang out and he takes this older, more seasoned cabbie and he asks him for advice and the the older cabbie gives him this whole spiel about this kind of meaningless uh, bit of advice about like, we are what we do for work and you know, the sort of thing like somebody spinning their wheels trying to just comfort you says... 
And De Niro's just like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And he's this guy who's in terrible pain and wants to connect, but it's just this the impossibility of connecting captured well in that moment. And, you know, Taxi Drivers is Jodie Foster, who I think is 12 at the time, right? And he's going, and it's supposed to be, I think is 12 in real life. I'm trying to remember the actress, how old she is in the film. Well, should, should, should we explain there. what the film is? Yeah, just, yeah, go for it. So, I mean, it's De Niro plays, as you said, Vietnam vet, comes taxi driver because he can't sleep at night. He is working constantly. Like, you see him at various points. He's making money. He doesn't, he's living in, like, this cramped apartment, eating terribly. Um, he starts going out with this woman who's working for a uh, Palatine, who's a can- candidate for Senate, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, president, isn't he? Senate, Senate. Yeah, po- political candidate. Yeah, political yeah. candidate. And he's got this button, um, um, you know, uh, um, super populist. I'm trying to remember. We are the people. Let, let we are the people. Yeah. yeah. And there's um, and there's another character in the campaign, Tom, who there's like a moment where it's like, is it we are the people or we are the people? Uh, which I thought was amusing. Uh, apparently that guy, uh, the actor said that after the um, – uh, after the film was screened, the screenwriter came to me and was like, oh, thank you for you know, the job you did as an actor. Uh, y- y- Tom, that character was the only character I didn't really know. And he was like, the normal guy with a regular job? That was the character you didn't, you didn't know. Um, and so uh, he takes this, this woman out. Uh, he's sort of really kind of intense in everything he does. He ends up taking her to like a porno um, and not seeming to be fully aware of... of why that's so inappropriate? If there's something that doesn't connect, it falls apart. Um, he kind of becomes more and more isolated. He encounters this like, tw- you know, child prostitute and and her pimp, and then he fantasizes about killing the Senate candidate. Uh, he can't go through with it, but then instead he decides he'll, he's going to res- rescue the prostitute, and he gets into this, and, and he goes and. Uh, shoots everybody, uh, and then he becomes a hero. Yeah, he can't decide whether he wants to degrade a woman or rescue her from degradation, so this beautiful Sybil Shepherd character he has to demean by taking her to a porno theater, mm-hmm. and the young prostitute he has to save from the, the degradations of her pimp. And uh, Schrader said that this was based on the diaries of the uh, guy who shot... Uh, shot George Wallace when he was running for president in 1972 and on Dostoevsky's Notes from the Underground. And, and it really is sort of that, that, that cross. And, you know. and, of course, it has to be pointed out that it then inspires future killers. Uh, was it Hinckley who shot Reagan, uh, believed that he was saving Jodie Foster? Am I getting that wrong? He did think it was Jodie Foster... Um, I don't know how Taxi Driver related that was. Um, well, let me say this about the the two together, about the Rogers and the, and the Bickle taken together, because I think Taxi Driver is the closest thing there is to a manifesto on film. Mm-hmm. And not just because interspersed throughout the movie are these passages, uh, these monologues that De Niro delivers where he's writing in his diary or you get the voiceover and, you know, he's talking about needing a great rain to come and and wash the scum away. It's not just that he's writing a manifesto in the film. It's also the way the film is shot. 
It's a visual cinematic manifesto. It's about being the total imposition of one point of view onto the world. You know, it's about somebody placing their will on top of the world. The difference in those two, uh, the, the Bickle and the Rogers, or one of the differences is that Bickle is still attached to a moral universe. So Bickle sees he wants to save, he wants to inflict violence on the, the deserving. There's still a kind of moral mythos that animates him. In his, it's inchoate, mm-hmm. he's deformed, but he exists within that idea of good and bad and redemption and, and punishment. Whereas Rogers, that's gone. It's totally solipsistic. He's inside of his own video game. There's mm-hmm. no larger moral universe I, I agree, although he, he thinks there is one and that, that he is avenging something or other and says so and makes a point of writing this out and putting his words out. But there. he never the attaches what that taxi is. The driver is, is, is the, the anticlimax after the, the shooting mm-hmm. at the end of the movie. Yeah, yeah, it's a five-minute montage, give-take, which is, in my view, just an unbelievably subtle and incredible fuck you to Death Wish in particular, but to a lot of the vigilante fantasies of that era where Travis Bickle, like, truly unhinged and disturbed man is on newspaper covers and embraced yeah. as a hero and as a, as an avenging angel. And going back to both Rogers and Bickle, I spent a lot of time around Bernie Getz in different capacities and reporting stuff out. And, uh, you know, we, we, Jake, you and Bernie I... Bernie Getz being... The, 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 the famous subway vigilante yeah. hero um, who, shoots, uh, who shoots a bunch of kids who maybe were, maybe were not trying to rob him. But one of the really incredible things about Getz's like story, and then he right, disappears through a tunnel, and that's part of why he becomes so legendary after the shooting, and then he gets captured upstate. And when he gives his confession, he has all of these details in there about how one of them was down on the ground. He said, do you want more? And uh, he didn't say anything, so I shot him more that are just made up. It very much looks like don't match the witness accounts, don't match the forensics from the shooting, and become part of his legend. That in his own confession, he's already wrapped up in this in this fantasy um, of himself as this uh, as this heroic avenger. New York City police are calling this the most serious subway crime this year. Four men, 18 and 19 years old, shot by a gunman who is still at large. A gunman who police say told the conductor of the southbound number two train that the four victims were trying to mug him, and that's why he shot them. If I had more bullets, I would have shot them all again and again. The old, my problem was I ran out of bullets, and I was gonna I was gonna gouge one of the guy's eyes out with my keys afterwards. All of these characters, whether there's a coherence to it or not, they're trapped in the same fantasia. What I love about Taxi Driver is I, I think it really understands both the, the, the desire and what's so sick and wrong about all this. And being the person, even if it's passive there, a rain is going to come. Or in Roger's version, I'm going to be this god that, 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 that uh, whatever morals are there just, just become madness. And then... They get translated either in a broader world, like, you know, Bickle on the cover of the paper and leading the news as an avenging hero, mm-hmm. or in these tiny worlds, like, you know, on your um, down-with-women forms. And there's a yeah. lot of them in different forms, not just the incels, right? Um, the, the, these acts of obvious depravity and stupidity and needless violence get translated into a, into a cause, whether there's any underlying, like, coherence there or not. And that, that, that to me, is what's scary and what Taxi Driver understands as art. Yeah, I, th- I think so. Yeah, and also, you know, the the we were talking 
earlier about like, well, is it the society, you know, influences upon upon this guy or or, or what ha- what have you? One of the things about Bickle uh, in Taxi Driver is like he's making choices specifically to put himself into the seamiest, the dirt. Like he he's he's yeah. actively rejecting any possibility of exposure to things about the world that will show him something different from his own view because he doesn't want to see it, right? And and that's probably why he's got – he has to take Betsy to the right, porno, right? right? Like because, you know, the fact that she seems, you know, pure and angelic to him, even though that's theoretically what he wants, it's, it's in violation of his worldview and the world that he wants to live in and, and dwell in. Yeah, I think that um – the the way that the I mean it's just such a brilliant film and De Niro has never been better I mean you know De Niro kind of evolved into a De Niro character at a certain point but he is so such a force of of something I mean it it's just an incredible film and the way it's shot the score it, the whole thing is utterly brilliant. So New York has a 60-40 rule that got started under Giuliani as a way to get rid of the porn stores and the filth mm-hmm. and wash that stuff away by, by code rather than right, by right, violence, right? right? Yeah. And it's like you can keep having your porn stores, but if they're anywhere near anything, right, like 60% of it has to be non-porn stuff. So when this starts in like the early 90s, you end up with all these stores that like have back rooms with like, you know um, – uh, fantastic, filthy fucking 52 and whatever. And then in the front they have books and cheap DVDs. And, like, all this stuff. And they have to have it there to be able to sell the profitable merchandise. So, in the early DVD era, this is where all the best movies were. And you could get, like, Five Corners on DVD, which is a great New York movie with Tom Robbins, for like, $3. Or, like, 27 martial arts movies for $6. So, I'm not Bickle. And uh, I, um, I ended up taking my now wife there on one of our first dates. I'm like, this place has the best movies. We'll get something to watch. And, you know, it's like a Scuzz Emporium 72 on, on uh, Christopher Street in the village. And I'm like, no, no, look, look. Like like ninja films, romances. <laughs> this is what we're here for. And I, I completely didn't understand this. I'm left with like five films. I'm like super happy. $12. Well spent. Um, and... Um, <laughs> She then went to her cousin, who's my friend, and who I knew her through, and I was like, is, 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 he, a, is he a madman? <laughs> well, you know, Bickle yeah. never thinks he's Bickle. <laughs> I didn't think I was Bickle either, um, but, but there we are. The other, the other thing that occurs to me, uh, you know, is a kind of salient difference between them and maybe the evolution of a type, is that Bickle, again, it's this attachment to a kind of moral mythos that's warped and perverse, but that he operates within. So he wants to go after the corrupt politician, the scum on the streets, the the pimps and, and the pushers. Who does Rogers want to go after? Chads and Stacys, the normies, the people who are, are merely um, enjoying pleasures which he believes himself to be deprived of, that there's a, a total... There's a way in which Rogers is so totally cut off from everything but this kind of very narrow, shrill experience of pleasure with no – and a pleasure in consumption with no attachment to any 
larger social system. You're giving Bickle a lot of credit for identifying his animals. All the animals come out at night. Horrors, buggers, no, but it's, versus, no, no, no. Um, no, 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 but it's important. No, it's important because of what you just said in part about the way the film ends because the way the film ends is with Bickle becoming an accidental hero, right? So there's a possibility of mainstream heroism as misguided as it is because Bickle, I'm going to ruin the film for people. If you haven't seen Taxi Driver, stop listening now. But the film ends with Bickle killing this pimp and and freeing this young girl. And because he does that... And what comes right after that may or may not be a fantasy, by the way. I I think it doesn't matter, though. But what comes after that is him being greeted as a hero, right? And now the very end of the film shows that his heroism resolves nothing. Right. The the film ends on a note that shows him still disturbed, skittish, afflicted by the voices in his head. But because of the way that his mania has lined up with a kind of tabloid desire for an avenging heroism, he can be taken as a hero. There's no possibility of heroism with Rogers, except in these fetid dungeons. But the the the. You're making a face. I'm saying that it's so, it's so purely an act of negation. Maybe there, maybe there's a possibility of, of only that kind of purely there's nihilistic. There's a lot of people in those dungeons, and they're not as isolated oneself from the other as they were. But this is precisely the issue: is the way in which that is becoming a new form of perverse mainstream spectacle. And the taking of incel seriously, for one thing, as if it defines a kind of discrete identity group that ought to be able to leverage its, you know, leverage society for its its complaints and grievances, is a dangerous, in my opinion, dangerous misapprehension. This is not to say that, you know, lonely, suffering people should be spat upon. I think that's a, a despicable impulse. But neither should... Um, you know, people with grievances who form themselves into kind of leverage interest groups be be taken seriously right off the bat just because they can present themselves in that language. You know, uh, it's a but it's it's a it's a different, I think, different phenomenon than what happens in Taxi Driver where Bickle is able. Maybe it's the same thing or, or converging. Maybe they're converging. But Bickle is able to sort of line up, his mania lines up for that brief moment with the mania of the larger society, which is what uh, allows him to be mistaken for a hero for a moment. And uh, Well, and I think that's interesting just in, in terms of, like, I mean, the, what the end of Taxi, Taxi Driver is asking us, right, is, is, is less about the psychology of, of, of Bickle at the very end than just being the way in which we sort of take up or, or discard acts of violence and, and what our relationship to it is, right? Um, and, you know, Bickle, you know, it, it's a matter of chance that he ends up the hero rather than the villain. But he would have, but he would have been a, a disturbed, terrible person regardless. And he's acting this stuff out through these women who are, yeah. you know, forced to play this role in his psychodrama. Right. right. Um, man, we've we've said a lot, sir. We've said a lot, Harry Siegel, ladies and gentlemen. 
Thank Any you final very... words, brother? Someday we'll sort out what this all means. <laughs> Uh, Phil, you got any stories coming out? Uh, yeah, yeah, I should. <laughs> uh, I'm writing something on Eric Wrighton, so we'll see. See how that goes. Okay. All right. Till next time. Good night, love anyone except the freaks who could never love anyone.